All right, let's pray. Oh, sweet Jesus, thank you for this privilege to come into your presence, uh, that you're coming soon. Uh, God, we long for that. And so I just pray that as we reflect upon that topic this evening, that you would stir our hearts and that we would long for that even more than we ever have. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this evening's message is entitled, Building a House for My Wife. And as I mentioned the other day, this is not a marriage seminar, uh, and I'm not married, so that's uh, not what this is about. Not that I'm opposed to such things, by the way. Uh, Anyway, what we're going to be addressing this evening is the fact that the grand narrative of Scripture regarding the second coming is couched in the context of a wedding. That the grand arc narrative of Scripture regarding the second coming is a marriage. Jesus is coming again to claim his bride and to take her back to live with him forever. Amen? Amen. Let's talk about that. What better place to start talking about marriage than the Song of Solomon? You ever heard of the Song of Solomon in a sermon? Uh, Really? Well, good for you. Uh, It doesn't happen very often, but praise the Lord. Song of Solomon may say Song of Songs, and if you've got a really interesting Bible, it may say Canticles. Uh, not to be confused with a derogatory statement of someone's lower extremities. <laughs> uh, maybe you didn't get that joke, but I did. Okay. Um, canticles. Anyway. Roman, uh, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. Moving on now. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, and beginning in verse 6. It's actually on the board as well. If you can't find it, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, and beginning of verse 6. It says this. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy as cruel as the grave, its flame are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. And we'll come back to that statement in just a moment. It says, Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give love, give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. And listen to this. Um, The brothers of the soon-to-be bride uh, say, We have a little sister, and she has no breast, but what shall we do for our sister in the day that she's spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver, and if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. And she says, I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. But then she closes by saying, Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Now, many scholars, not many scholars, but there are scholars who wrestled with this. Even Martin Luther wrestled with, what on earth is this, like, erotic love song doing in the midst of sacred scripture? Like, they just use the B word twice in a sermon, and I'm already uncomfortable. Like, what do we do with this? Well, here's the entire point of the Song of Solomon. In short, it's about the son of David and his pursuit of his bride. Now, who else is referred to as the son of David? Jesus. Jesus. And who is his bride? The church. We are. And so this whole love song is teaching us something about God's love and pursuit of his church, of his people. That's the purpose of this song. So it's about the pursuit of the son of David for his bride in their eventual wedding. But listen to this regarding verse 6 of our previous verse here. It says this. This is a commentary on those verses. Just as the grave does not give up its dead, so intense love will never give up the beloved. And when it says a most vehement flame, it's best translated literally the very flame of Yahweh himself or the Lord. This expression reserved for the thematic climax of the entire song 
reveals that Yahweh is the true source of human love and thus provides the basis for the typological interpretation of the song. This is the point. When it says, we'll go back to that verse, you can see it. It says, jealousy is as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. This is speaking of the love that God has for his people. It's this unquenchable love, this insatiable love that God is so intensely pursuing and caring towards his people that nothing can stop that. But it closes again by saying, then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Now, the name Solomon is actually the Hebrew male equivalent for the word peace. For instance, if you've noticed, if you've ever seen, if you've ever been watching the series The Chosen, for instance, or you've uh, interacted with Jewish people or seen Jewish movies or so forth, when they greet people with the greeting Shalom, they're wishing peace to these individuals. Solomon's name literally means peace. And the Shulamite, the bride of Solomon, the bride-to-be, Her name is the female equivalent of peace. And the point is that when she gives in to his pursuing love of her, this is what brings an abiding peace. When peace and peace come together, this is what brings that abiding peace into the heart. And the point here is this, that when the bride of the son of David responds to his pursuing love for her, this is the only thing that can bring her peace. And the same is the case for you and I this evening. The only thing that's truly going to bring us peace is not making more money, is not getting more success, is not climbing the corporate ladder. The only thing that can truly bring peace into the depths of our soul is responding to the pursuing love of God. Amen? Amen. That's the point. Now, I want to cover now a a series of verses in Ezekiel chapter 16 uh, that's an interesting illustration. God uses this strong emotional language, again, referring to his pursuing love for his bride. Ezekiel chapter 18, uh, 16, actually, Ezekiel chapter 16, and beginning in verse 4, okay? Speaking of, he's using an illustration here, but he's speaking of a child that's been thrown on the side of the road, that's been abandoned, freshly born child, and that's thrown into a ditch and left and abandoned. It says, as for your nativity on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pity you. In other places, it says that no one loved you. In other translations to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day that you were born. Just imagine a precious, innocent child born into the world, and instead of being loved and cared for and nurtured, it's tossed into a field and abandoned. Not properly cleaned, not properly cared for. It's devastating. Well, imagine how the child's going to feel later in life hearing this story. But he continues in verse 6, But when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, and you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again, verse 8, and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. I'm so thankful for this, that when no one else seems to care for us in this world and we're left to fend for ourselves, we're not nurtured, we're not looked after, there's a God in heaven who does take notice, amen? Amen. And He nurtures, He loves, He believes, He cultivates 
into this precious dear soul, and it grows into a beautiful being. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was a time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. And you know, our situation is very similar in this world. We are unloved in the sense of the fact that no one can love us and fill us as God can. And some of us have deep emotional wounds in our lives today because we didn't know that going into life. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but many of us can understand that, that there were key individuals that we just thought that they, first of all, those who should have given us love, maybe they didn't. And maybe we left a secure environment thinking we would get love from someone else, and we didn't. What we got was emptiness, betrayal, loneliness, abandonment. Only God can truly love you in the ways that we need in the deepest depths of our being. That's what's being referred to here. God doesn't want us to remain in that condition of loneliness and rejection, so He comes looking for us, and He sees something of value in us, even though we're a mess on the side of the road. And I'm thankful for that, beloved. I'm very thankful for that. God literally desires us to live, and He's willing to do whatever it takes for us to have our growth and our health, and His work in our lives is what makes us become beautiful, and the consummation of this is in us being clothed in His righteousness. And it reminds me of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, where it says that we love Him because He first loved us. It's impossible to find love in your heart for God until you first encounter God's love for you. That's what we're told in Scripture. And it's amazing that God is willing to love us with a perfect, unselfish love. But the amazing thing is, He does it whether we respond or not. That's what agape means, the agape love of God, the perfect love of God. He gives whether He ever receives or not. Now, He does desire a response, but He doesn't give only if He's going to receive. You understand the difference? It's a perfect, other-centered, other-focused love. Again, when I passed by you and looked upon you, indeed, your time was a time of love. I saw that through my pursuit and care of you, you were ready to fall in love, that it's time for you to fall in love. And many of us have that need in our experience today. And God is pleading with you today, it's time for you to fall in love. It's time for you to let me sweep you off your feet. For some of us, for the first time, And for others, it's time for us to fall in love for the first time again. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16, we're told that we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And I love this, that as we grow mature in receiving God's love, this is one of the ways that we prepare for the second coming of Jesus, by learning to accept the love. Because if the second coming, if we're, this is really true, that the whole narrative of the second coming in Scripture is pointing to a wedding, you really don't want to start focusing on falling in love with somebody after you're married. Am I, am I correct in that? Yeah. You kind of want to be sure of the fact that you do love them, that you're in love with them, and you want to spend the rest of your life with them, which is why God pursues us and sweeps us off our feet with His pursuing love first. We love Him because He first loved us, and He wants us to know and believe that we are loved. Not just intellectually consent to the possibility that He may love me, 
but to experientially know and immerse myself and believe that I am already loved, that I am already pursued, that I am already accepted, that I am already desired. And this is what's going to awaken a reciprocating love in your heart and in mine. Amen? This is what God wants in our experience. It reminds me of the story of Hosea chapter 2. God married us. God uses a lot of illustrations regarding marriage and the people of God throughout the Old Testament. But in Hosea chapter 2, this picture basically is given of an unfaithful bride that God married us. He lavished His love upon us and invited us to partake of His covenant. And we spurned it and we went to other lovers. We rejected him. We pursued other lovers. We were unfaithful to our marriage covenant. And his response is so unexpected because if you're giving your life for somebody only to receive not just a lack of reciprocation, but full-blown betrayal, what would you do? Most of us would take a trip to the courthouse and move on with our lives. But look at what God does. In Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. Verse 16, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. Beloved, God does not want you to have this relationship where you're these groveling slaves hoping you'll be good enough at the end of the day. That is not the relationship that God wants with you. He wants to sweep you off your feet and for you to recognize that He's the love of your life. That literally He is everything that you've been looking for and you are everything that He has been looking for. Amen? This is what this whole thing is about, beloved. Encountering this amazing love of God leads to a shift in how we understand Him and how we come to understand our own standing with Him, how He views me. And when He sees that we're ready to fall in love, then He drops on one knee in verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. But what has to take place to make this a reality? The very next chapter begins with the story of a price being paid to buy back an unfaithful woman. This is the gospel, beloved. Jesus coming to this earth and paying a ransom with his own life to buy back a bride who's been unfaithful. Hosea goes and buys an unfaithful bride in the following chapter. Beloved, we are not capable of creating the type of love that God deserves or desires. It comes from us first encountering his amazing love for us. And this is why God is the one to make the first move, even though we fail and pursue other lovers. And this also leads us to have a change in our desires, and it leads us to begin to love the things that He loves and to hate the things that He hates. And this theme of Jesus coming as a husband to woo us is in the New Testament as well. In John chapter 3 and verse 29, John the Baptist has followers, and he's baptizing people, and word gets to his followers that Jesus' followers are baptizing people, and they get kind of territorial. Hey, bro, like this guy, they're baptizing people. And John's response is, fellas, this isn't about me. My entire job was to prepare a bride to receive her husband. 
That's why I'm here. This is what he says. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. My best friend got married on my birthday of all days uh, a year and a half ago, and he got married in Texas. Did anyone hear from Texas before I say this? Dave! You are such a good dude. I'm glad you got out of there. I'm not a fan of Texas personally. I've, I've had my own bad experiences there that I'm still coping and working through. So just pray for me in that. I, I, I'm not a big fan of Texas personally, but um, Jesus loves everyone, including Texans. Amen? Amen? It's just the truth. And I don't not like Texans. I just don't quite understand the patriotism for the state of Texas that's really not all that great personally. I, that's just me. Anyway, if you ever met Texans, they like love Texas more than they love other things that like their children and stuff. And it's the weirdest thing. So I'm like, it's not that great, guys. Anyway, so my friend gets married in Texas and I'm his best man at this wedding and I give him my birthday as his wedding gift because he got married on my birthday. Now imagine what his wife would have done had I made the entire wedding about me. How do you think that would have gone over? Well or not well? What do you think, ladies? Not well. Yeah, I would have been murdered on the spot, right? And she would have done it in such an incredibly tactful way that her dress would still look amazing, right? I'd be dead, the dress would look amazing, and that's, we would move on with our lives. Well, she would, I wouldn't, because my life is over. It's, it would be a terrible thing to do. John understands your role as a best man is not to make things about you. Are you with me? That is not your job. Your entire job is to make sure this guy and this girl end up together and you back off the scene. And that's what John is trying to tell his disciples. This is not about me, fellas. You missed the whole point if you think so. And he, the, the amazing thing to me is when people start talking about the ministry of Jesus and its growth, John understood the Old Testament trajectory of the ministry of Jesus. He's coming to get married. He's coming to win his bride. And my job is to, to be involved in this courtship, to connect the two, to make sure they're ready for this. John understood that Jesus' ministry is about being a bridegroom. Jesus is, his disciples are challenged because they say, well, how come your disciples don't fast as John the Baptist's disciples fast? And this is Jesus' response. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 15. And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Jesus' immediate you know, declaration here in the early part of his ministry is that the whole point of me being here is a wedding. Are you guys seeing this? This is happening all throughout Scripture. Jesus is declaring, I'm coming for my girl. That's why I'm here. And they're not going to mourn over me right now. Like fasting is a form of mourning. I'm with them. They're going to mourn when I'm gone. But the point is Jesus affirms John language here in identifying himself as the bridegroom. He begins his ministry with a marriage in mind. Amen? Amen. Jesus begins his ministry with a marriage in mind. Then we get to the end of Jesus' life. There's parables he's told also using matrimonial language. The first miracle that Jesus works in Cana in the Gospel of John is at a wedding, giving his crowning endorsement of the marriage union. But we get to Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is having the Last Supper with the disciples, and he does something very interesting, particularly if you're a first century Jew. We don't catch this because we don't know the history. But what he's doing is, is pulled right out of the playbook of first century Judaism and their cultural norms. So Jesus, here's kind of the backdrop. Jesus 
says, or Matthew chapter 26, verse 27, it says that then he took the cup and he gave things and he gave it to them. Okay. And he says to drink from it, all of you. They understood what was happening here in a first century Jewish context. When a young man finds a girl that he's interested in and he has a desire to be with her, he goes and tells his parents, they talk to her parents and they arrange a feast. At this feast, there's food, there's music. It's an enjoyable time. But they are seated at the focal point at the head of the table. And the time of the feast will come when the bridegroom, well, not yet, when the young man is going to drink from the cup and he's going to pass it to the girl. This is the proposal. And if she drinks from that cup, what she's stating is, I accept the proposal. Now, if she doesn't drink from that cup, it's embarrassing, right? Girl won't drink my juice, made a fool of myself in front of everybody. I'm never doing this again. We think the fear of rejection is hard nowadays. Imagine in this situation, like it's not going to go over well. That's what happens. But in this situation, he passes the juice. So when Jesus at the Last Supper in this intimate meal with the disciples is drinking from the cup and handing it to the disciples, they understand the narrative that they're plugging into here. Now, Jesus is not marrying dudes. You understand that, right? That's, that's not the point here. It's an illustration of Jesus' desire for the church. Okay, That's what's being said here. That's what's being projected here. The next words that would come out of the bridegroom's mouth would be this, or the young man's mouth would be this. Don't be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm leaving. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is even borrowing the language that a young man would use in that context. I have to leave you. I'm going to my father's house, and I'm going to prepare a room for you and for me, which is what they did. They would build an extension onto their father's house that would become their new home. This is what he's going to have to do. And he cannot come back and get his bride as his own until he's finished this work. So he's got to leave her. He can't see her, right? She's not calling him, rooting for him. Hope it works well. Do a great job for me. Make it pretty. He doesn't hear from her. She doesn't hear from him. He has her promise that I'll wait for you. She has his promise that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And they won't see each other again until it's time to get married. This is how this process works. And Jesus borrowed that very language as he's giving his parting words to his disciples in the communion meal and in the language he uses on the tail end of that communion meal. Now, he does this work alone. No one helps him. He can't go back and see her until it's finished. And what motivates him to keep doing this difficult work is the promise that she made to him to wait on him and to prepare for his return. That's what kept him motivated. I want her to be with me where I am. I got to do this for her. Her responsibility during this time was to learn how to be a wife by receiving training from her mother. And she would keep a lamp in her windowsill for him to be able to see when he comes back. Because she doesn't know when he's coming. Could be at midnight. Like, I mean, just imagine. This girl wants to be with you. You want to be with her. You know the prerequisite is, I got to build a house for this girl. Right? When I built, can you imagine that was the case today, ladies? Like, first of all, like, I would never get married because I don't know how to build a house. I'm not really a man. And so, like, that would be terrible. Like, my, my chances of marriage are very slim if that's the standard today. But here's the point. It was very clear that this young man was committed. He wasn't playing with her affections, wasn't just trying to win her over. Like, this, this cost him something. He had skin in the game, 
Are you with me in this? Right? And he's showing I'm good for it. This is showing the future father-in-law he's good for it. He's not a bum. Right? This guy is going to make sure that my daughter is going to be cared for. He's doing this work, which is beautiful and powerful. But she also is leaving this lamp in her windowsill because whenever he finishes, he's not waiting. If he finishes at 1045 at night, he is going to probably take a bath or something. And he's headed straight for her place, wash his hands, you know, get the sawdust off, whatever. But then he's going straight for her place. I want to see my girl. I want to be with her. And what she's doing to show him that she's waiting is she's keeping her lamp burning in the windowsill. That no matter what hour of night that he comes, he knows what house to go to. He knows what to expect. That's her token to him that I've been waiting and I'm ready. The interesting thing is Jesus used this language of keeping a lamp trimmed and burning in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, the ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. And when the bridegroom was ready for the feast, the virgin cousins would lead the way back to the home of the bride. And the whole parable was based upon the second coming of Jesus and people being ready for it. Jesus is using all of this marriage language surrounding the second coming. So the point here is this. He's using this matrimonial language for the second coming, just like the Old Testament did. And this teaches us something of great importance, commitment. First of all, Jesus has shown his commitment to us. And the fact, he was willing to come, live, suffer, die, and burst of that tomb on day three. But he didn't stop there. He now is going up to heaven and preparing a place for you and for me. He had to build this by himself before he could get married. And every brick this guy laid had a purpose and a goal in mind. He didn't get to see her. But again, what motivates him was being able to have her as his own so that she could be with him where he is. But he can't go get her until the father says that the house is good enough. Even he doesn't know. He has no idea how long this is going to take. He has to have the father's approval. This house is good enough. This room is good enough. Now you can get her. And it's interesting because Jesus even uses language like this. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Right? Only when my Father declares it is ready is it time. And this reminds me of a story of a friend of mine when he was getting married. His buddies got together for the, uh, they had a sanctified bachelor party. No foolishness was involved in this one. And they all wrote letters to my friend Sebastian, kind of giving him some advice, preparing for his marriage. And he said they grilled him pretty good. But this is what one of them said. Sebastian, my prayer for you is that after you get married and the flame of romance has died, that it will always be able to be rekindled as long as you maintain the embers of commitment. And what he's saying is that flash and dash of the romance will eventually lessen. That doesn't mean you stop loving each other, but the true source of your love and the true source of safety in this marriage are your embers of commitment. Because even if a fire goes out, you can rekindle that fire with active coals. Are you with me? When you've got those warm coals, you can do that. But if those coals go cold, there's no hope. And so he's warning him, when that time comes, when that happens, you can always rekindle this thing as long as you maintain those embers of commitment. And So he makes this point. He says, if we get into a relationship, but the groundwork for commitment has not been laid, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Our culture doesn't cause you to focus on commitment. It causes you to focus on romance. But when the fire of romance dies, what are you going to do? It's only those embers of commitment that can bring it back. 
And he makes this point. This is just a brief little point he's making about marriage, but it's applicable to our preparations for the second coming is why I'm sharing it. He says, we need to make sure that our road towards marriage as a single person is paved with tests of commitment. Otherwise, we'll find out in our marriage that we weren't ready. In a Jewish culture, they found out before you were married that you were committed. He knew what it was like to prepare for a relationship, and it was the same thing for a woman. And he got no affirmation as he built for her. He just kept building with her in mind. How would she view the house when he brought her there? All he had was her word that she would not give her affection to another. All she had was that his word was that he was going to prepare a place. And they were committed even though they could have done something else. And that can happen. Jesus can sweep you off your feet and some other shiny object can come within your line of sight and you can forsake that commitment. Some of us have had that in our lives. We had that commitment and then life happened. Difficulties came and we realized, man, would he even take me back? Well, what Hosea tells us is absolutely yes. And the first thing that's going to get that fire roaring again is by focusing on those embers of commitment, laying a foundation of commitment. Love should be our motivation for our preparations for the second coming of Jesus, not fear. Jesus does not want people making plans as fire insurance for the second coming. I better get my life together. I hope he doesn't too mad. Let me, uh, I'll give money to poor people and uh, I'll give a homeless guy a ride. And I just like, Jesus, please, I just hope and pray that somehow maybe maybe I'll be good enough. That is not what he wants for you. Are you hearing me this evening? Jesus wants you to be swept off your feet madly in love with this man. That's what he wants. He wants you to recognize that you are the object of a divine affection. You were already loved. You were already accepted. You were already desired. Before you bit your fancy hairdo, before you start practicing your King James language for your prayers and and getting a ruler out to make sure you have a 90 degree angle when you pray at night beside your bed, that is not what he's looking for. Jesus is not looking for dry formalities. He's wanting a genuine, heartfelt relationship with people. That's what he's seeking. Am I saying be irreverent? Of course not. But if you think it's just a bunch of stuff I do to change his disposition towards me, you have missed the gospel entirely. Because the gospel is God's disposition towards you before you get anything right. And you changing and responding to that. Does that make sense? We don't want to have that Babylonian form of situation. So love should be our motivation for our preparations. And true love is committed. That's the point. Okay? Then Jesus, as he's praying at the close of his time with his disciples and the close of his time on earth, he's praying to his father earnestly, intensely, and passionately. And he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me might be with me where I am. Father, I want them to be with me. I desire, the yearning desire of my heart is for them to be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' ministry began and ended with an emphasis on his pursuit of his bride. Are we seeing that from Scripture today? All right. Scripture closes with this. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. When it's speaking of the holy city, Jerusalem, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Who do you think that Lamb is? 
is Jesus, and it says his wife has made herself ready. Amen? I want that to be said about me, beloved. But, so this, this is the case. This is what Scripture is talking about. And here's the amazing thing. The Bible begins with a wedding in Eden. Adam and Eve getting married at the very beginning of their existence. The Bible ends in Revelation chapter 19 through 22 with another picture of a wedding, God being reunited with this bride. And if the beginning is about a wedding and the end is about a wedding, I'm not a doctor, but I'm just guessing that maybe, just maybe, everything else in the middle here is talking about the grand plans of God sweeping His bride off her feet and winning her and preparing her for that day so that she can be ready. Amen? That's the point, beloved. You were already pursued. You were already desired. And what's motivating Jesus for the second coming is not a vindictive, retaliatory attack against the wicked. It's his longing to pick up his girl. If you were leaving to build a house for your girl, you think you're just going to never come back? No, 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 no. He is waiting and longing. But why Jesus tarries is because he wants to make sure that his bride isn't caught off guard. He wants his girl to be ready, and that's why he tarries. But we have to answer some questions here this evening. But has this made sense, first of all? The entire point of the second coming of Jesus is a wedding because he's head over heels in love with you. But how will he come? Because there's some confusion about this, and we want to make sure it's abundantly clear, because if God truly desires for his bride to be ready, then he's probably going to tell us, hey, here's where I'm going Here's why, here's how, to make sure that you're not caught off guard. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let's look at that briefly. How will Jesus come? Matthew chapter 24, verse 20, Jesus says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus equates the second coming to like lightning in the sky, from the east to the west. Now, is lightning visible? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. Even when your eye, how many people have been lying in bed at night and there's a spring thunderstorm and lightning is flashing, flashing and you know every time it happens and not because of what you hear? How many people can relate to that? Unless you got like killer shades in your house, right? You know, it's because lightning is so bright that even when your eyes are closed, you can see it. Jesus is being very intentional with his language here. It will be highly visible. You're going to have to try really hard to not be able to see what's going on here. Okay, and where is it that he's coming from, according to these verses? Well, yes, but specifically in the clouds, right? Lightning coming up from the sky, right? And we see this again in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27. It says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Now, if Jesus, first of all, of all the people in the Bible and in the world in all of its history, who do you think would be the most reliable person to ask what the second coming of Jesus is going to look like? Jesus, Jesus right? If there, there's not going to be any confusion. If anybody knows, it's Jesus. And Jesus has just said, like lightning from the east to the west, right? It's coming in the skies. It's going to be very bright, very easy for all to see. And Jesus again has said, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. So is Jesus coming alone at the second coming? No. Who's coming with him? The angels and? The Father. And the Father. 
Okay, he's coming, the glory of his Father, with his angels. It's going to be a party, y'all. This is not going to be a circumstance where like, ah, let me, you just stay in the car. Let me go pick them up real quick. Like that is not what's going on here, beloved. This is something that's very clear. Everyone's coming. We see this now. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from where? From heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now I'm not trying to be put, you know, um, mean or short here, but we, we just have to understand, does any of this sound like a secret, first of all? No. No, this is loud, like really loud, okay? A shout from heaven, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God. He's used three incredibly audible examples. We've seen that it's visible. Now we're seeing that it's audible. This is not a secret. This is not a circumstance where you're going to wake up the next morning and realize, on CNN, Jesus came, y'all missed it. This is not going to happen, beloved. That is not going to be the case here. It's very clear when this is happening, this is really happening, and it's happening right now. But then it says the dead in Christ will rise first. Even dead bodies are coming out of the ground. You think someone's going to lose sight of that? No, this is a grand spectacle, okay? Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them where? In the clouds to meet the Lord. And where's he at? In the air. air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then he says, therefore comfort one another with these words. We're going to talk about that again tomorrow night. So this is clearly an audible event where the trumpet of God is sounding. There's a shout, the voice of an archangel. And dead bodies are coming out of the ground. And people who are on the ground are levitating and ascending into the heavens. This is the most spectacular display the world has ever seen. No one is going to forget about this. This is clear as clear can be. Okay? Then we get to Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Okay? Because Jesus has done such amazing things for humanity, this should change the way that I do life. My priorities are going to change. Right? And I'm going to want to live a life that would honor Him because that is part of my preparations for the second coming of Jesus. But as we've already talked about, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. He's not asking you to white-knuckle your way into heaven. He's asking you to fully and completely open your heart to Him, to trust Him with every aspect of your life, to surrender every aspect of your life to Him. And when we do that, He will do a work in, through, and for us that we thought was impossible on our own, because it is impossible on our own. And I love this. But it says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is it just said? What what type of language is used regarding the second coming? It's referred to as the, the blessed hope. This is a gift who gave himself for us, that's Calvary language, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Again, talking about God's creative power where Jesus is able to recreate his people, to purify them and and make them zealous, to even have a desire to do good works, right? Which means that works are not absent from the believer's experience, but they're also not the means of salvation. You understand the difference? Works are the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. Yeah? So the second coming of Jesus is that blessed hope. Okay? 
And just imagine if you paid $5,000 for a television, right? For like in-store pickup, would you leave that thing in the store and never come pick it up? Imagine giving all of heaven in one gift. Do you think Jesus is going to forget about you? No. no, 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 no way. If there's anything that testifies to the fact that Jesus is coming a second time, it's what he did the first time. Amen? Amen. And he left nothing on the table. He gave all for you and for me. And so he's asking us to live soberly, righteously, and godly right now through the power of his Spirit. But there's going to be two classes of people at the second coming of Jesus. The first is found in Revelation chapter 6. It says, And the kings of the earth, beginning of verse 15, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, do you notice the irony of that statement? Can you imagine people running from a lamb, right? But they recognize that they have heaped up for themselves judgment because they have spurned the grace of God. They want nothing to do with the grace of God, and so he will give them what they want, right? Which is the absence of the grace of God, though he wishes all to be saved. He doesn't take delight in this. This is a strange act for God, we're told. We're told in Ezekiel chapter 33 that he has no delight in the, in, in the death of the wicked, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he says, but that the wicked turn from their ways. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? But fallen us, us, uh, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, what do you think the fate is of this group of people in Revelation chapter 6? Saved or lost? Lost. Lost. It's a tragic story. This didn't have to be their story, but it is. But here's the second class in Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 8, it says that he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. And what have they been doing? We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. Again, we have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What do you think the fate is of this group? Saved. Saved. Beloved, does that resonate with you at all when you read that this is our God? We have waited for him. Maybe some of us, we had that spark at one time in our lives. And over the course of life happening and trials and difficulties, our own failures, and over the course of time, we found that not only did the flame of romance die in our relationship with God, but even the embers of commitment. And we don't know what to do with the cold, dark, ashy place that we find ourselves right now. We don't even have embers of commitment to work with to fan this thing into flame. And we wonder, is there even any hope for me? Like, I know that that should resonate with me, but there's nothing going on inside. There's no spark for me. And I just wonder like, hey, that sounds amazing. And that's cool that God loves humanity and stuff. But, and maybe me, but like, I don't feel it. There, you said that, you know, the first thing we need to do is encounter God's love, and then it awakens a reciprocating love in our hearts, but like, 
I don't know if that can happen for me. Here's the good news, beloved. We can encounter the very flame of Yahweh tonight. Amen? Amen. That most vehement flame in the Song of Solomon. Maybe your fire has gone dead, and even the embers of commitment have gone dead. You can come boldly into the presence of Jesus and ask to be consumed by the very flame of Yahweh. And you think He's going to turn you away? Absolutely not. We're told in John chapter 6 that he who comes unto me and she who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. You know what that's saying? If you have nothing to offer Jesus but the fact that you are coming to him and that he has made a promise in the scriptures that he who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast off, that's enough. That's enough. And if you come into his presence with that one promise, In that very moment, you are as safe as though inside of the city of God, beloved. And he can rekindle that flame through encountering the very flame of Yahweh. He can revive you. As we saw in our our presentation on the covenants, he can raise you from the dead. We can prophesy to that breath. And if you recognize that I know Jesus is coming soon, but the only emotion I feel in my heart in relation to what you're saying is, well, hopefully not in relation to what I'm saying, but in relation to this topic, is fear, that can change. God, would you give me different motivations for the second coming? To no longer look to just try to keep myself from getting in trouble, but I want to actually fall in love with you. If the whole point of this thing is a marriage, I don't want to wait to love you until I get to heaven. Would you teach me how to love you in the here and now? Would you overwhelm me with your love for me tonight? and tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. Lord, would you change my understanding from no longer viewing you as my master, but to view you as my husband, as the love of my life. God, would you do that for me tonight? I don't have the strength for that. I don't have what it takes. But if what this guy is saying is true, then would you make that a reality in my life? Because I want you to imagine this evening, going back to the analogy where Jesus tells the story of a young man going and building a house for his wife. Imagine the work that he's gone through, the long, cold, difficult nights, the injuries that come as a result of building things. Anyone ever used a hammer improperly? It happens. And the thing that keeps him going in the midst of the frustration and the difficulty is her. And beloved, that's what kept Jesus nailed to that cross when he could have come down, was his thought for you. Jesus was building a house for you on earth by suffering and dying and winning the trust of humanity. And he's building a house for us in heaven right now. And it's not just that he's, let's not assume that when he says, I'm going to go build a place for you, that Jesus has spent the last 2,000 years building physical structures. That would be the worst carpenter in history. That's not what's being referred to here. I'm sure there is some form of physical preparation, but even more so than that, Jesus is preparing a place for you by preparing a place in you. Jesus is doing a work on your heart even as we speak. Jesus is doing a work in your neighbor's heart, in your spouse's heart, in your children's heart, preparing them for the day that's to come. This is what Jesus is doing. But imagine all of this painstaking, difficult labor. 
You get yourself cleaned up. The cousins lead the way with their lamps. You get to the house. And the windowsill is dark. Can you imagine the heartbreak? I gave my life for this girl. I gave her everything I had. And what I come to see when I get to her house is there's no lamp in that windowsill. And she's given her affections to another. Can you imagine how devastating that would be? Beloved, imagine Jesus bursting through those skies to take you home only to come and realize that he's going to have to honor the decision that you've made to not go with him. He's going to be devastated, guys. This is how Jesus is going to feel for every person who did not respond to the plan of salvation. Not with crazy rage, but with heartbreak. And as we're praying and thinking this evening through what we've heard, I would encourage you to ask yourself the question, is there a lamp burning in my windowsill this evening? And again, if you've got no spark, but you know that what you're hearing is true, then ask for the very flame of Yahweh to light that thing. Ask Him to come into your heart and to light you ablaze for the glory of God. You can do that. As we said in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. You can ask. And if you come to Him, He's not going to send you away. We've seen from the Bible that the whole point of the second coming is a wedding. And we've also seen from the Bible that the second coming of Jesus is literal, it is audible, it is visible, and I believe with all of my heart that it is imminent. That Jesus, as they were singing so lovely this evening, He's coming soon. I don't know how much longer this world can make it, guys. If you want a homework assignment, read Matthew chapter 24. Jesus tells you what the state of the world will be that's before the second coming. But if all we're doing is staring at signs, but we never look in the mirror and deal with the stuff of our hearts, what's the point of Matthew 24? You've missed the whole thing. So we focus this evening on the heart work, but I would encourage you to read it. There's a handout that goes along with this evening's message that explains more about the second coming of Jesus. I would encourage you to study it. Make this thing your own. But grab those decision cards. Everyone's got them. This is just your opportunity to, to correspond and communicate with us. What's on your heart? What do you see? What do you need? This is your chance to kind of give your feedback. And so as you've got this decision card... There are five things here. The first is this, for box one. I accept the biblical definition of the second coming of Jesus as being literal, visible, audible, and imminent. I recognize from Scripture this is not a secret. This is the grandest event the world has ever seen. And if that's you, I want you to check that box. Number two, I want to keep my lamp burning in my windowsill to let him know that I'm eagerly waiting for him return, for him to return. Jesus, I want you to come back. I miss you. I need more of you in my life than I have ever needed. I want that to be the case. I want to be ready. Make me ready, Jesus. That's number two. 
Number three, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. If you're recognizing that He's been wrestling with you and wrestling with you and you want to say yes tonight, if that's you, you can say yes. Number four, I've got a question. You, you sparked some interest tonight and I, you said one thing, but I wonder about some stuff. Write it on the card and someone's going to follow up with you, okay? If you have questions, if you want me to come talk with you, if you'd like to have a visitation in your home, if you have questions along those lines, I'm happy to do so. Let us know that. Number five, I have a prayer request. Please pray for me. Whatever that circumstance may be, we are praying for you. We take that seriously. If there's something we can do in that regard, let us know. In fact, you'll be getting some phone calls here soon for that too. Do not just pray for you. We'd like to pray with you because you matter. You're important. And we want to make sure that that's clear. So number one, two, three, four, and five. Number one, I accept the biblical definition of the second coming of Jesus as being literal, visible, audible, and imminent. Number two, I want to keep my lamp burning. Jesus, I want to be ready. I want you to make me ready. Number three, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Number four, I have a question. And number five, I have a prayer request. That's you. You can fill up those cards accordingly. And what we're going to do is we'll have a bucket you can drop those cards into just to make it easy um, that we'll do at the conclusion of this prayer. But again, has this message made sense this evening? Yes or no? There's a God in heaven who is head over heels in love with you. He wants to spend the rest of his life with you. His life will not be the same without you. But the question is, what will you do in response to that reality? And if you need that flame of Yahweh to light you ablaze tonight, you better believe he'll do it. Amen? Amen. Sweet Jesus, you've heard our plea. You've made your plea, and we've heard it. And you've heard our plea. God, we want to be ready. We want to be ready. So come. Even so come, Lord Jesus Come, like a bride waiting for her groom, we're your church, ready for you. And so, God, we want that to be the case. Come, cover our sins with the blood of Jesus. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, I pray that you would sweep us off our feet, that you would overwhelm us with the love and the care and the desire you have to be with us, and that nothing would keep us from making that decision for you. This is our plea tonight, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.